So for those of you that perhaps are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning. With our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to skip ahead for just this one Sunday. 1 Peter chapter 3. We do have some guests with us this morning. Thank you so much for joining together with us and for worshiping with us. If you're here for the first time, we preach and teach expositionally, which essentially means we select a a book in the Bible and we preach straight through it. We do take breaks occasionally from the preaching, but uh, or from the book rather. but generally, we spend a great deal of time, and we've been in First Peter now, uh, not consistently, well, consistently, but not uh, consecutively, for a little over a year. Now, Peter is writing to a dispersed people, a people that are suffering. And in their suffering, he is challenging them to be submissive. And so I want to read the first seven verses of 1 Peter 3, an introduction on place of submission in a marriage. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden uh, person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weak vessel, weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So the place of submission in a marriage. Let's go to the Lord Jesus in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for this beautiful display of family of blessing these young couples with children. May, as we have signified by responding that we're going to pray for them, may we continue to do that. May we not be negligent. May we not be lethargic in praying for them. Guide us into truth as we look at this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, we had a, uh, a youth parent meeting here on a Sunday afternoon before Sunday evening service, and I was privileged to be part of that meeting, and I listened to youth parents, parents of youth here in our church speak about the, uh, the spiritual discipline that they use within their homes. And it, it did my heart a great deal of good. You, as a pastor, quite often you don't know, I mean, I do know the word of the Lord never returns void. 
So if you're here this morning and you're going to, you'll hear the Word of God and you will in some fashion respond to it one way or the other, you're either going to accept it or you're going to re- reject it. So every time the Word is broken, Sunday school, preaching, youth study, whatever, the Word of God is either received or it's rejected. And it's either received by believers or sometimes it's rejected by believers. And so that's one of the reasons that Peter is writing about Submission. We do not have the authority to reject the Word of God. I listened to the parents, and uh, young people, I want you to know that they have a great um, concern for you. They pray for you. They want you to mature in the faith. And that is... That's the greatest love that can be shared by a mother and a father to you. And I trust that everyone here this morning, I don't know your family backgrounds. Perhaps some of you are from broken homes. We're going to speak to that about that here in just a moment. But I do know that most children love to be in the house of God if parents would just bring them. If you won't come, make sure that you have someone bring them. Don't make an excuse. Be mature. Bring them to the house of the living God. Yeah, they'll learn about him at home and should. But the overwhelming times that we are exposed to the Word of God, we are exposed to formulative discipline that makes us like Christ. So bring them to the house of God. So I'm going to open this morning with a few statistics for you. First slide. Slide 309, brother. Thank you. I didn't get, was not able to give you that, but you're... Jeff's smart enough to figure that one out. Associated Press a few weeks ago, a couple of, actually about 10 days ago now, published an article that read, The Widespread Loneliness in America Poses Health Risks as Deadly as Smoking Up to 15 Cigarettes a Day, costing the health industry billions of dollars annually. This is a report that was circulated by the U.S. Surgeon General. Research research shows that Americans have become less engaged with worship houses, community organizations, and their own family members in recent decades. And most Americans have reported an increase in feelings of loneliness. Single households have doubled in the past 60 years. The epidemic of loneliness hits young people, ages 15 to 24, especially hard. In this age group, reported a 70% drop in time spent with friends during the same period. 
Loneliness, this article goes on to say, increases the risk of premature death by nearly 30%, regardless of age. The report revealing those with poor social relationships also have a greater risk of stroke and heart disease. And isolation increases the chance for facing depression, anxiety, and dementia, the loss of memory. Next slide. No surprise, technology Technology has rapidly intensified the loneliness problem, with one study finding people who use social media for two or more hours daily were more than two times as likely to report feeling socially isolated than those that were on their phones or computers or whatever less than 30 minutes a day. Your phone will tell you how long you've spent on the phone on average this past week. So remember that. Compare this with a recent Wall Street Journal University of Chicago uh, analysis, which found that the core values that once stood out among Americans are being, uh, as being important. Uh, morals worthy of pursuit and emulation have receded. That shouldn't surprise us. Over the last 25 years, the importance we attach to patriotism, to religious faith, to having children, and caring about community has plummeted. And I say this without reservation, every Christian couple that can should have children. I'll make no apologies for that. It is a rejection of the command to be fruitful and multiply, without exception. In 1998, this was before 9-11, 70% said patriotism was very important, and 62% said the same about religion and faith. Today, those numbers... 25 years ago, today, 25 years hence, only 38% say being, being a patriot is important. And only 39% say religion and faith is important. Having children, or those desiring to have children, fell from almost 60% in 1998 to 30% today. Making all sorts of excuses like, oh, the climate, the climate is going to get us. The climate is always going to get you. And the community involved from 62% in 1998 to 27% in 2013. Here, I'm going to show you the, the uh, graph, but here's the article. Sometimes, well, the preacher just made that up. Nope. Wall Street Journal may, made it up, maybe, but I didn't make it up. There it is. Okay. And the greatest drop in these numbers has been over the past five years. However, and here's an interesting thing, and you won't find this alarming. 
the importance we assign to money has climbed to 43% versus 31% in 1998. It seems then that one thing is increasing. By the way, everyone thinks that their attitude about money is the best attitude to have. And if you all had an attitude about money like I do, then the world would be perfect, all God's people said. You see, we all think that our attitude about money is, is better than the next person. Because in a materialistic culture, and we are materialistic, we favor that. I include myself in that as well. Next slide. So here's a chart. I hope that you were taught how to read charts when you were in school. If not, go back to school. You need to learn to read charts. But basically it says, and just to point these out, that patriotism in 1998 was, what did we say, around 70%. And notice that it tails along, it's declining until we reach about 2020, and then whoop. The same thing can be said about religion and faith. It's declining, and then about 2000, well, 2019, rather. Whoop. Having children, it's declining, but we reach 2019, and whoop, drops off the face of the earth. Community involvement actually increased after uh, 9-11 and then dropped precipitously from 2019 through where we are now. And then money, 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 money increased. And we live in inflationary times. I understand that. It impacts me as well as it does you. Now, Bill... McInturf, who was a pollster that was involved 25 years ago, and then the last time this was done was 2019, uh, said that these differences are so dramatic that it paints a new and surprising portrait of a changing America. And you and I are part and parcel of this. We are not... Uh, we're not ignorant and shouldn't be ignorant of these particular facts. Next slide. So four things about the drop here. The loss of patriotism includes the loss of loyalty to anything beyond the self. Remember, as I told you th uh, three or four weeks ago, the greatest idol is always self. Includes the loss of lo loyalty to anything beyond the self. A lack of gratitude for the good gifts that accompanies one's earthly character, uh, earthly citizenships, rather, and a diminished love for one's neighbors. And that's the second great command, which we neglect, which we reject. The loss of religion and faith implies the disappearance of transcendence. That means a God that is beyond time. Time does not constrain God. God constrains time. It implies the disappearance of transcendence or significance beyond this present moment. We just live for the moment of something that reaches beyond our earthly horizons. The loss of community means we value our freedom. We've preached about that a couple of times over the past few weeks, have we not? 
We value our freedom that comes from being alone more than mutual obligations that accompany deep and sustaining friendships. And then the loss of children. And all of these are, should be, uh, should strike a nerve, but this one in particular. The loss of children means we no longer look to the future. We no longer are able or willing to endure the distractions and burdens of raising and training the next generation. And to add fuel to the fire, 40% of children that are born are born to non-married people. Many of whom are single parents. Trevin Wax, the Gospel Coalition, said the effect of sin is loneliness, which often compounds the problem, leading to a further shriveling of the soul into the cocoon of self-focus. You remember the story of the Grinch that stole Christmas? What happened to his heart? It shrank and it shrank, and it shrank. You know anything about the Grinch? He lived by himself. Next slide. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in one of his great works, wrote about sin's power. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more attractive the power of sin will be over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Loneliness is epidemic. And it's epidemic because of the failure of biblical marriage. We can call it traditional marriage, you can call it new community, whatever you want to label it, but it's biblical marriage. Is there any doubt today that the biblical structure of family is disintegrating? Baptist faith in marriage defines mar uh, marriage as uh, to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife <clears throat> for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church for the Holy Seed and for the preventing of uncleanness. That's why we're married. Whether people know it or not, that's why we're married. So when believers encounter Chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, when it says, talking about being submissive, or we were to go to Ephesians 5 and read Paul's admonitions, why do we overlook them? Why do we ignore them? Or worse, why do we disobey them? Why do we reject them out of hand? God has, this is God's will, by the way. We've talked, over the, the, talked about God's will of command over the past few weeks. This is God's will. So why do we? 
read this and say, well, that was for an ancient times, not for today. As if God was ancient, and we're far more enlightened than the Spirit of God was 2,000 years ago when he gave Peter and Paul these words. Now, we will never say that publicly, but we think it. Next slide. Peter writes here, and, uh, and I want to remind you this morning, this is a, an introduction only. So we'll come back to this at a later time and we'll dive into it. We will dig for diamonds. So this morning we're just basically raking leaves. I'm setting the stage because this is Mother's Day. You probably already know these things, but you, we always need to be reminded. We're forgetful people. Remember the Lord said, this do in remembrance of me. Now, the place of submission in a marriage. There's a great book written by a lady by the name of Elizabeth Dodds. Robbie wants to get it. Marriage to a Difficult Man. All God's women said, <laughs> by the way, there's a corollary on this written by Elizabeth Dodd's husband entitled How to Cope with a Marriage with a Difficult Man. I made that up. It's about the life of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. An excerpt from the book says, like most geniuses, and Jonathan Edwards was a genius, he's considered the, probably the uh, greatest theologian this country has ever produced and one of the greatest in the world ever. Like most geniuses, Edwards' social skills were uncommon, and he didn't have any. He was awkward. He was solemn. He would much rather sit and study and produce written works than go house to house working out his theology and practice through social engagement. Sarah, his wife, would heartily entertain guests and tend to the house duties, leaving Jonathan to his study, where he both felt he was much more, they both felt that he was much more suited and called. Together, they had 11 children. And interestingly enough, almost all of them lived into adulthood and lived long lives. Now, Edwards died in March of 1758. He took a, uh, uh, an experimental vaccine from smallpox. We have become very uh, adaptive. It's very common today, is it not? Children receiving he wanted to show to his congregation that science was the truth of God. And yes, some sciences are. Some are frou-frou, but some sciences are. And so he took it, and in a matter of about a, a month, he had passed away. In March of 1758, his wife Sarah passed away in October of 1758. It is said that she grieved herself to death even though she was married to a difficult man. 
Both together they had 11 children. Now I want to, want to read to you this morning their legacy. Each of us has a legacy that we're going to leave behind if the Lord tarries. But I want you to understand something about this remarkable couple. Edwards was only 55 and his wife was only 50 when they passed. I'm long past 55. In 1900, Albert Winthrop, who wasn't who was uh, an educational individual, contrasted two families over the past 150 years. One of them was the Edwards family, and another was a very prominent family back during that time that was far, far wealthier than the Edwards were. That family had hundreds of descendants who had been nothing but a drain on society. A wealthy family. The family and the descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards were outstanding for their contribution to societies. In fact, over the years, 150 years, the Edwards clan, as Winship said, whatever the family had done, it had done ably and nobly. And much of the capacity, talent, intelligence, and character of the more than 1,400 descendants of Sarah and Jonathan Edwards is due to Mrs. Edwards. By 1900, their marriage had produced 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, and a dean of a law school, 30 judges. 66 physicians and a dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, including three U.S. senators, mayors of three large U.S. cities, governors of three states, and a vice president of the United States. They also produced a controller of the U.S. Treasury. Members of the family wrote 135 books, they edited 18 journals and periodicals. They entered the ministry in platoons and sent 100 missionaries overseas, as well as stocking many mission boards with lay trustees. Biblical marriages influence society. And they influence society for the good for many, many years to come. The Lord told Moses to write in Exodus 20, You shall not worship them or serve them, talking about idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. I think it can easily be said that the 1,400 descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards is part and parcel of the loving kindness that God had shown to their family. And America is a far greater country because of them. 
Peter writes about Christ's submission in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. And so I'll ask you this question this morning. Is he alone in the New Testament for writing about Christ's submission? And, of course, the answer is no, he's not. Almost every author in the New Testament spoke of the submission of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul said this as he wrote to the church of Corinth. He said, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Next slide. So what does this mean? And Peter talks about it here. Talks about submission. Talks about husbands dealing, dealing with their wives. What does this mean, that the head of Christ is God? What do we know about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? They make up the Trinity. We know they are co-eternal and that they're co-equal. None of them are superior to the other. They're equal in power. They're equal in character. They're equal in attributes. There's an all-consuming affinity within the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how is it possible? How is it possible that the head of Christ is God? Well, it cannot be in their essence because they're the same. It cannot be in their nature because they're the same. It cannot be in their substance or their power because they're all the same. So it must be in their function and what it is within the Trinity's will for them to accomplish. An agreed submission, a voluntary submission. Christ, who is co-equal with the Father as God, submits from all eternity to do the Father's will. Not because he's inferior to the Father, but because he is, it is his vital and his necessary function. The head of Christ is God. In order for the purposes of God to be worked out in your life, my life, and for all eternity, Jesus must delight to do the Father's will. And he does. He's submissive, and he does it delighting to do it. His mutuality is never questioned. And his submission to the Father is absolute and clear. He never wants to promote himself above the Father. There was one that did want to promote himself above the God the Father in heaven. Do you remember who that was? Lucifer. Christ is God, not an angel. Hebrews 10 says, Then I said, speaking of Jesus, Behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me. 
in the scroll of the book, even before the incarnation, the pre-incarnation statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm come to do your will, O God, O Father. Next slide. Since the union of man and woman, and so what we're doing here is we're defining wives' submission. We'll talk about husbands' submissions, submission when we come to that, perhaps on Father's Day. Since union of man and woman are patterned after Christ and his submission to God the Father, in his submission we have an exact picture of the structure and the fabric of marriage. The husband and wife are equal before God. Mutually the same. There's no debate on that in the New Testament. Families should function in harmony. Now remember, we are living in a fallen world. It's not a perfect world. It's fallen. We're living in a fallen world. Families should function in harmony. So the wife, with no loss of dignity, no loss of position, no loss of equality before God, takes the place of submission to the guidance of her husband. In the same way as Christ, with no loss of dignity, is submissive to the headship of his father. That's what Peter is writing. That's what Paul is writing in Ephesians 5. The submission of the wife is to be a voluntary submission, an expression of her godly submission to God. The voluntary submission of Christ to God the Father. The headship of a husband. Now, we're talking spiritual headship here. We'll define this more as we... We won't finish it this morning. We'll define it more as we come. So I encourage you to come back and be with us. The headship of a husband is to be a costly headship. Patterned on Christ's love for his church. Clearly stated for us in Ephesians chapter 5. When biblical, and the family is biblical, this pattern is beautiful and life-giving. It can be subverted, and often is subverted. subverted. First, by a, tyrann uh, a tyrannical husband. Second, by a wife who fails to be a partner with her husband, but is simply passive. Again, freedom does not mean we acquiesce. Three, by a rebellious wife. Tyrannical husbands and rebellious wives. And there are those. And fourth, by a husband who abdicates his responsibilities. Who's just plain lazy about leading his family spiritually. Husbands, the Lord Jesus Christ never instructed wives to be the spiritual leaders in homes. Never, ever. That's why it's a costly headship.
Next slide. Marriage is a union where two become one. Without leadership, an endless power struggle ensues. There was a movie made a few years ago, a pretty cute, cute movie, titled My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You may have seen it. And in this wedding, or in this movie rather, a, a father is opposed to the man that his daughter wants to marry. The daughter turns to her mother for help and, and asks, what can you do so that Papa will allow me to get married? After all, he's the head of the house. And the mother replies, yes, but I'm the neck that turns the head. In some cases, that's true. Marriage is God's gift to the human race. And we <laughs> try as we might, we're not going to improve on it. We're not going to make it more fashionable. We're not going to make it more unfashionable. We're not going to make it more, you just fill in the blank. It's been with us since Eden. And it will be with us through eternity. It's an institution that he's commanded, that he's ordained, and he's instituted. He did not simply create the estate of marriage and give it to the human race and then say, hey, you can do whatever you want. No. His instructions are clear. And part of the reason we are where we are today is because we want to do whatever we want to do. So self, again, has become an idol. God bounded marriage by his law. He set forth certain principles to govern marriage. He determined who may enter into marriage, when one may enter into it, and what constitutes a valid marriage and a valid divorce. Alistair Begg said the mutuality which exists between a husband and wife and the inevitable responsibilities which fail to each, which fall to each rather, are not in the purposes of God enemies, but rather friends. Who makes them enemies? Husbands and wives. Not God. So, we won't cover this passage this morning. Again, I will say we'll come back to it, but I just want to give you a 40,000 feet view. In verses 1 through 7, you can divide it into two portions. The first four verses discuss mixed marriages. In other words, Christian and non-Christian partners. Now, this is not a Christian knowingly marrying a non-Christian. That comes back to the who, when one may enter into it. Specifically, Peter is speaking about wives that have become believers, where their husbands are not. And then, verses 5 through 7, Peter talks about holy women, and he talks about holy men. So that is the overview that we have 
I think there's one more slide, yes. brother. Is there one more slide? Yes, okay. So here's the context. And we'll close this out. Verse 11 of chapter 2 through verse 7 of chapter 3. Peter's instructing the believers that he's writing to, the pilgrims, how to live in a pagan society. It's instructive to us because we don't live in a Christian society any longer. I'm not sure we ever did, but we certainly don't now. How do we live in a pagan government? How do we respond to it? How do we submit in a non-Christian place of employment? How do we live with an unbelieving partner? And Peter says in verse 12, he said, we are to glorify God in the day of visitation. We are to do this. We are to be submissive. Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, single men, single women. Because it glorifies God. Submission, then, is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and mutually work to raise a family according to her gifts. It's the nature to follow the husband's authority, inclined to yield to his godly leadership. Now, husbands, your wife should be able to say, I delight for you to take the initiative and responsibility for family and lead with love. I don't flourish as your wife when you are passive and unengaged in the family. You're a husband to her and father to your children. And the Lord, as a believer, will hold you responsible when he judges his children in the world that is to come. It's going to hold me responsible. Here's the rub. Submission doesn't follow a husband into sin. Christ submits to his father, but his, his father never tempted him to sin. Submission responds by reminding the husband that you cannot yield to sinful acts or be included in them by simply indicating, I can't follow you into sin because Christ is my king. The allegiance that a wife has to Christ is greater than the allegiance. She has to her husband. The allegiance that a husband has to Christ is greater than the allegiance that the husband has to his wife. Christ is king. Neither husbands nor wives are to be idols. Families are not to be idols. God, in his gracious giftedness, gave us families so that we might, like Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, have good impact on society. Only then 
Will homes become havens like, that should be heaven, havens like heaven without dire loneliness? And we'll close with this. Let's quote from, from Begg again. He says this, Peter is not implying the sexual inferiority of women. The submission which he called for does not negate the spiritual equality of husband and wife, but rather it's one of function, just like Christ. One of function. Every team must have a captain, every home a head, and God said that the responsibility falls to the man. The characteristic, therefore, most desirable in a good wife is that gentle and quiet spirit which responds with grace to the responsible decisions of her husband. Instead of being tyrannized by the evidences of the aging process and captivated by the changing fashions of the day, she is to focus on that which God prizes most and which he produces to the praise of his own glory. These verses are dynamic. And we must help our wives and daughters to discover the joy of bowing beneath their direction and displaying the radical implications of them in a society that is scrambling to find the identity of a real woman and a true wife. Wives and husbands... I pray that you have a pleasant Sunday afternoon with each other and that you meditate on the implications of these truths. And by the way, the Bible can define what a woman is and what a man is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we pray that in these next few moments that obviously, Father, we have there's been a lot of data, a lot of talk this morning about different things, but Father, the bottom line is this. Your word is superior to any of the data. Your word superior to any of our thoughts and intents, especially of our hearts. And the word is to guide us so that we understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. In doing so, we will model a biblical marriage. I pray for the wives this morning. I pray that you would strengthen them according to your word. If there are any here this morning that are wives of unbelieving husbands, we pray that you'd continue to move in their hearts to be an example of the Lord Jesus Christ to their unbelieving husbands. For those this morning that are wives, blessed to have believing husbands. We pray that you'd be with the husbands, that they would lead God and direct in the family as they should. Never tempt their wives to sin or to be involved in anything that is nefarious, that is against the word, but that we will love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. 
Save every soul this morning under conviction. Encourage us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to sing one verse of an invitation hymn this morning. If the Lord has spoken to you in any shape or fashion, we want you to come. We want you to make that right before the Lord. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we can't save you, but with an open Bible we can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is His desire for you. He wants you to come to know Him as Savior. If you're here today as a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Perhaps you need to follow Him in believer's baptism. Would you do that today or unite with us in statement of uh, faith or transfer of letter? What number, Brother Mike? 